Welcome to Painting Corners, your weekly podcast for all things baseball. Now, here are your hosts, Austin Hartsfield and Dave Kwiatkowski. Welcome back to Painting Corners. My name is Austin Hartsfield. No Dave today. Dave's out. But let's go ahead and jump into these topics. But before we do that, I just want to say that we do have an awesome interview with uh, New Hampshire Fisher Cats announcer Tyler Zickel. He's seen so much talent over a short time broadcasting. He had, as he says, the pleasure to watch a team that included the likes of Kevin Biggio, Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And what better time to have Tyler on than right before we think Vlad will come up within the next you know, week or two. So the Atlanta Braves today locked down another one of their big, big, big pieces of this rebuild that they're going through at this point. Today they locked down Ozzie Albies for seven years, $35 million. There's a lot that goes into this, actually. If you think about this, right, they extended Acuna last week, and we were talking about, wow, this is so affordable, you know, this is a perennial MVP candidate. Ozzie Albies is a guy who, number one, is Ronald Acuna Jr.'s best friend, but is also a key piece when it comes down to this Braves team and a key piece when it comes down to the NL East for the next 20 years. If you have an effective Ozzie Albies and you have an effective Ronald Acuna Jr. and not to mention, we're going to mention him in a second, but the emergence of another young guy in this in this team that they acquired through a trade with the Diamondbacks a few years ago, it's going to be pretty interesting in Atlanta. So what does this extension actually mean to the Atlanta Braves? We obviously had the big lockdown piece last week when Ronald Acuna Jr. signed. You have to think about it. The baby Braves are locked down and you have to think about what this does for them. It does three things. Number one, you've locked down Ronald Acuna Jr.'s best friend and the second biggest piece of your franchise outside of Freddie Freeman, in my opinion. So the two biggest pieces of your franchise and the two guys that are drawing in crowds to Atlanta again, like it's the 90s all over again, are under team control, extremely affordable until 2025. And honestly, if we want to talk about Acuna, Acuna's technically under contract until around 2028 when he's a 31-year-old free agent, which is usually around the time that somebody gets their second contract. Acuna will be still working on his first and probably will have bagged at least one MVP in that time. And probably if his defense increases, a few gold gloves, a few silver sluggers, and will be one of the best players in baseball for the next 10 years. Let's go ahead and talk about the most important piece that I believe in this entire Braves rebuild and the Braves of the future. His name is Dansby Swanson. If you can get Dansby Swanson to continue the run that he's on, the guy has four home runs already. The guy's career high at this point is 16 home runs. So he's already a fourth of the way there. He's, he's going to be a gold glove winning shortstop. He was acquired in a trade with the Diamondbacks a long time ago for Shelby Miller after being the number one pick just six months earlier, which has only happened four times in Major League Baseball history where the number one pick has been traded. It just doesn't happen. It's an albatross. You know, you don't see it ever and never as quickly as it happened to Dansby Swanson coming out of Vanderbilt. Number one pick is usually excellent talent. It's usually top of the line. There's a reason that they go 1-1. But the Diamondbacks didn't see it that way. The Diamondbacks needed pitching. They traded for Shelby Miller. And they also traded for another piece of this rebuild in Ender and Ciarte. But Danzy Swanson has a future to be a gold glove winning shortstop by the time his career ends in Atlanta. The guy is just that good defensively. When you have a guy like that at shortstop, you just take what you can get offensively usually and you call it a day. 
Not everybody's Xander Bogarts. Not everybody's Carlos Correa. Not everybody's Francisco Lindor. Nobody, not everybody's going to be these superstars that you have that can do it both ways. Dansby Swanson is slowly, and I mean slowly, mind you, morphing into that kind of shortstop. So if you can look back on that trade and say, hey, we got Dansby Swanson, who, by the way, is under arbitration until 2023 still because he's still that young. And you get Ender Enciarte out of that, who is a huge piece of this franchise again. You look back on that and you say, hey, you know, that was a pretty good trade for us. So Dansby Swanson, Ronald Acuna Jr., Ozzy Albies. What do we think that their contracts add up to by the time we get to 2023? I'll give you a hint. There are 21 players, 21, right now that make more money than those three will be making annually for the next five years. Ronald Acuna's contract maxes out at $17 million. We don't have the exact numbers on Ozzy Albies, but we predict it's going to be around $5 million, you know, probably backloaded a little bit. You still have guys like Jason Hayward, John Lester, Steven Strasburg, obviously, who makes $45 million in a couple of years, by the way. Three pieces, three huge pieces of your franchise are going to be making only $22 million. So if you're the Atlanta Braves, you have to look at this and you have to say, hey, we did a pretty good job. This is going to be exciting for us for the next couple of years, and we don't have to worry about handing out contracts to guys like that when you can focus on guys that are coming up to fill that outfield spots like Christian Pache. So if you're a Braves fan, you got to feel pretty good about the future, knowing that most of it is locked up, the big pieces, when you also have guys like Mike Soroka, Tookie Toussaint, Kyle Wright, Winkler, waiting to make an impact for this organization. So this is in a good spot. You're in a position to where you can make moves in the future free agency, even if everybody is signing extensions like the aforementioned Albies and Acuna. But you're putting your hat in the rink. You're allowing yourself financial flexibility, unlike a team in Philadelphia who seems to have it all figured out as of right now. But you're putting yourself in a position to possibly compete for the next 10 years. And if you're a fan, you can't really ask for anything more out of your favorite organization than to ensure that you're going to be there and competing as much as you can throughout your entire lifetime. Moving on, we're going to go ahead and talk about the Mariners and the fact that they just continue to mash. They got their power for from somebody who never hits home runs. He hit one of the most emotional home runs in Major League Baseball history when D. Gordon launched a home run off the bat leadoff after his death of one of his great friends and teammates, Jose Fernandez. But now, D. Gordon has never really been a power threat. But what he did just do is he ensured that the Mariners had 15 home runs, had a home run in every each of their first 15 games, which is pretty exciting if you ask me. This is a team that nobody expected a lot from. You know, DePito kind of sent everybody away, whether it be Paxton, Segura. You know, it just the list just goes on and on. Dumping guys like Cano is actually pretty impressive that the amount of assets that he got back, whether it be Justice Sheffield, you know, you know, one of my favorite players, unfortunately, J.P. Crawford. Somehow, it's like an island of misfit toys, like I keep saying. I mean, this Seattle Mariners team keeps winning. They keep finding ways to win. They keep mashing. But in my opinion, the Seattle Mariners are kind of like a jack-in-the-box, man. You know, you wind it up, you wind it up, and you're like, okay, this isn't that bad, you know? This is actually pretty good. It hasn't come out and scared me yet. But once it does, you know, the tension builds, the tension builds, the tension builds. Mariners are still leading the AL West, and all of a sudden it pops off, everything's back to normal, the tension's gone, and nobody's really surprised that it happened at this point. You know the Jack in the Box is going to come out and jump at you, you just don't know when. That's the Seattle Mariners right now. They will regress, they will not be the Philadelphia Phillies of the Atlanta Braves of last year. They will regress, they still will probably be an 80-win team, 
instead of a 70-win team like Dave and I predicted. But, you know, you can't say enough about what they've done early on this season. It's been definitely impressive. When you think about sports, you have to think about, you know, everybody gets compared to everybody. There's always a comparison. It's just how sports works. You know, whether it's Jordan LeBron, whether it's, you know, which of the three Braves pitchers was the best, whether it was, you know, could Murderer's Row lineup compare to the new Yankees lineup, the Red Sox teams of old, the 90s Braves versus today's Braves. There's always a comparison. But there's an odd comparison right now when it comes to Major League Baseball, when it comes to guys who, when it comes to sound, have the exact same name. You have Chris Davis in Baltimore, and you also have Chris Davis in Oakland. Chris Davis, obviously, is one of those guys that has dominated the league power-wise over the past couple years, batting, you know, 247 and continues to do so. He's done it three years in a row. So he is the model of consistency. Four home runs in two days, and already has more hits, more home runs than Chris Davis has this year. Because again, Chris Davis with a C is 0 for 61. It's getting out of hand. This is an Orioles team that is rebuilding, that is kind of stuck with this contract. Dave says that they should cut him. I don't think that you can afford to do that, and he's too expensive not to be in the lineup. He is. I mean, it's just plain and simple. He's too expensive not to be in the lineup, and is. Terrible as that sounds and as weird as that sounds for an organization, you have to keep him. You know, and I think Dan Patrick's right. I think this is a mental problem. This is a, you know, he didn't just forget how to hit a baseball. It's just plain and simple when it comes to that. You don't forget how to hit a baseball. Maybe you get the yips every now and then, but nobody gets the yips at this rate when it comes to hitting a baseball. It is the hardest thing to do in sports. Uh, I will fight that with just about anything that anybody says when it comes down to this. Hitting a baseball it should be impossible. Not to mention throwing a baseball, by the way. Our bodies are not meant to throw the ball 102, 90 miles an hour, anything like that, anything in that range. Our bodies aren't meant, aren't built for this, and they shouldn't be able to do these things. So your eyes should not be able to pick up a ball moving at that rate that quickly and you be able to put wood on it. It is the hardest thing in the world to do. And it only gets worse if you're getting paid millions of dollars and people are telling you how easy it is. So I feel for Chris Davis a little bit. But then again, there's a side of me that doesn't because this guy is making so much money and has made so much money when minor league baseball players in in the minor league are working so hard. Not saying that Chris Davis isn't working hard, but he's getting paid millions of dollars regardless. They're working so hard to bust their tails and they are making less than minimum wage. Emily Walden wrote one of the best articles in baseball history when she was talking about the minor league wage gap. And you have to feel for those guys down there, especially when you have guys up here like Chris Davis who aren't doing anything and aren't using, you know, aren't hitting, aren't doing anything productive for a team that invested so much money into him. Chris Davis now leads the league in home runs. That's Chris with a K. Has more hits than Chris with a C does in Baltimore. It's getting kind of sad. You know, at some point... If you're the Orioles, what when when is really the question? Do you look at it and think, man, we just might have to eat it? You know, that's not only this, by the way. There's a lot of deferred money in his contract. He had he had a very smart. He was a Boris guy, so he had a very smart deal. He had a lot of deferred money, so the Orioles will be paying him for a long time, regardless. You're basically stuck between a rock and a hard place. Somebody's gonna have to make a decision soon, whether it's keeping him, whether it's you know cu- cutting ties with him.
but you at some point you kind of have to feel for the guy. Someone you don't have to feel bad for is this umpire that wouldn't let Finn the Bat Dog, the Las Vegas Aviators now, hey, he won't let him do his job. Just let him go up there, get the bat, instead this asshole decides that he's going to throw it. Throw it. Like, why would you do that? This dog is trained to do one thing, and you know what? Props to our guy Finn, because Finn goes over there, picks up the bat, and does his job without even barking at him. You know, it's just hilarious to me that this guy, this umpire, just won't let a cute dog, which is obviously a gimmick, it's obviously amazing, do his job. Why do you have to be like that? You have a dog coming over there. They have a dog specifically for this. We have people that come there specifically to see the dog do his job. Obviously not a lot, by the way, because that va- that stadium is absolutely empty. Every single game that I've seen it, including the opener, which is absolutely pathetic. But, I mean, it's an Oakland organization. So, I mean, Oakland fans don't show up in the Coliseum. Why, why should we expect them to show up? in their younger and minor league places. But, I mean, why can't you just let the dog do his job? Don't be that umpire. Don't be that guy. Don't be that asshole. I mean, it's just that it's plain and simple. I mean, come on. Mike Trout was injured a couple days ago. He has a groin injury. We hope it doesn't last that long, considering baseball needs him. Baseball's better with Mike Trout around. We just have to figure that out. We have to, despite what Manfred thinks, Mike Trout does his best that he can marketing himself with his gameplay. With the way that he plays his game, being the best player in baseball, hands down, without a doubt, Mike Trout is necessary for the game of baseball to succeed. He is necessarily necessary for people to gawk at, people to look at, people to look at his stats. That's all people do. They talk about how legendary he is and how legendary he's been over the past couple years because he is the best baseball player to step on a field in 10 years. I mean, we can throw Barry in there, but, you know, Barry had questions about his steroid use. You know, we had guys like McGuire who questioned about his steroid use. Clemens, we could go on and on and on. Mike Trout, we hope you get better. We hope that you feel better. We hope that the groin gets better. And uh, speedy recovery, my friend. Clayton Kershaw, after getting rocked in AAA, is actually back when it comes down to this. He got absolutely rocked AAA. He's going to have another start in Oklahoma City. Uh, the last start against the missions, they kind of handled him. And the Dodgers just hope that he's getting better and is getting better quick because they are going to need all the help that they can get in order to fend off the Padres, who are on an absolute tear. Unfortunately, one of the best hitters in baseball, Whit Merrifield's two-season streak has come to an end on the day of this recording, which probably means yesterday. It was one of the best... It was one of the better streaks that we've seen in a while. You know, you... You get excited about streaks. Nothing's more fun than a streak, if we're being honest. I would rather see somebody try to hit a streak than anything else. They put him on the Twitter hitter of the day, which, if you're superstitious, kind of ruins you a little bit. Considering you haven't been, considering you're a Kansas City Royal, basically, and you haven't been the Twitter hitter for a very, very long time, probably ever now that I think about it. And they put you on there. Doesn't obviously affect wit. But being superstitious as I am, you know, it can't help but kind of creep into your mind. Whit probably didn't even know it. But it's sad to see the streak to come to an end. But I'm sure knowing Whit Merrifield being one of the best second basemen in baseball, including being one of the best hit contact hitters in baseball, will fix this, will come to terms with this, and start a new one. Now we go to our interview with New Hampshire Fisher Cats, Toronto Blue Jays AA interview, Tyler Zickel. Tyler, Tyler is the broadcaster for New Hampshire. He talks about you know the new minor league rules. He talks about guys like Fernando Tatis, who he watched. Guys like Fran Mel Reyes. Fern- uh, 
Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette. I mean, the list goes on and on. We also talk about a bunch of other stuff. He's actually a lot of fun. This is one of my favorite interviews that we've ever done, just because Tyler was very open with us. Tyler didn't hold anything back, and uh, he's seen a lot of he's seen a lot of prospects with those eyes. I mean, it's hard to find somebody who's seen as much talent at such a young age as he has. And I hope you guys enjoy the interview. Very few eyes have seen as much talent as the guy that we have on right now. Tyler Zickel has been an announcer for the. Double A Blue Jays, Fisher Cats, let's put it that way. Uh, and he's also been an announcer for the Lake Elsinore Storm for, in the Padre system. So, Tyler, first of all, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. My pleasure, fellas. Thanks for having me. How did you get so fortunate to see all this talent go through? Well, I guess you got to shout out the various respective brass of the Padres and the Blue Jays, and specifically the Padres to start, you know, back in 2014 when I began in the Padres system and started off my minor league baseball career. That was Hunter Renfro's year in advanced day. And so an opportunity to see him up close and along the way, just more guys coming up through the system. Most notably Luis Urias. I got to see him do his thing. My final year there, he was an all-star. He was a rookie of the year. And just to watch him go about his business at 18, 19 years old, whatever he was back in 2016, just a testament to his ability and guys that you may may not have have expected to have the same kind of impact at the big league level for the pods that they have, like Fran Mill Reyes, a guy who repeated at low A Fort Wayne in 2014 and 2015, came up to Lake Elsinore in 2016 and, you know, had an excellent year all told. And from there, his ascension to the big leagues was relatively rapid. And, you know, those are just the guys with the bats. You know, the guys on the mound include Trey Winginter, Phil Maton. I saw him for a splash, but that high spin rate was destined for the big leagues and the opportunity just to really be around guys at that level when they just are starting to figure it out and be able to go out and repeat each and every day those various things that make them elite players. And you can see who has made their way up to the big leagues. I am not surprised by just about anyone. I think Franmil for me was less of a surprise, but more of an awesome outcome for a really awesome guy. And, you know, awesome is a word that is certainly used very often by everybody to describe even the smallest things. But I am truly in awe of the Franmil. He is awesome. James has got me all hyped on him. <laughs> like, I knew who he was before, but, you know, talking to James more and more, it, it, I get more... He's, like, one of my favorite players now. Like, it's just insane to me how quickly I've turned the, turned the corner on somebody like that. Dave and I are both Red Sox fans, so we have a little bit of a different take, but, you know, writing for this San Diego organization now, uh, specifically the Sod Poodles, I mean... There's so much talent in the system, and there was back then when you were there. But you saw two of the top 11, I believe, prospects in baseball this year, and Vlad and Bo, and have a ring to show for it. What was that experience like throughout the season? Well, certainly once in a lifetime. You know, more than five occasions, I've looked back on the 2018 season and thought to myself, man, from start to finish, that may very well have been the most unique, most exciting year or season in my entire baseball career. And I certainly hope it's not as that was season number five and what I hope is 50 seasons. But at the same time, you start with the rumor that you're going to get Vlad and Bo and you hear about this Kevin Biggio guy as well, who wasn't really on anybody's radar to start the season. You know, March comes around. In fact, Vlad and Bo have their birthdays in March and working for the Fisher Cats, of course, after an awful season on the field in 2017, 
we were looking for any way to get excitement going for 2018. And I'm lucky enough to be a big part of the social media team here between Twitter and Instagram. And so we were just looking for ways to kind of light the fire. And in March, when we were sending out the birthday tweets to Bo and Vlad, the huge response we were getting from Blue Jays Twitter was an early sign to us that 2018 was going to be a year unlike any other, regardless of what happened on the field. And of course, the circus came to Manchester, New Hampshire in the best way. No clowns, just Vlad going oppo bomb off the tee for MLB Network. And that, you know, being one of many moments that went viral courtesy of uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And that's just one guy. You have Bo Bichette manning shortstop all season long. I'll tell you, he can go and get it at short. He makes incredible plays, has an incredibly strong arm. And this year, while he saw his batting average take a dip, you know, he was the minor league batting champion last year. He certainly learned a lot as a hitter. And you could see between the first half and the second half, and especially down the stretch in August, he really figured it out and was able to get after these guys in the upper minors, especially these pitchers who, once you get to double A, they have good enough stuff to pitch in the bigs. It's just, again, a matter of being able to do that each and every outing, pitch in and pitch out. And so Bo figuring that out certainly contributed. And then Cavan to have a season that he did, he ended up winning the MVP and the rookie of the year for the Eastern League. So for those three guys, to lead us to the Eastern League Championship and, again, to finish it up with a ring. No better way to spend April through September than by celebrating it with a champagne shower at the end of the year. You kind of hit the nail on the head there for my next question, which was, you know, Vlad had all these crazy moments and, you know, you got the ring and all that. But you said all this talent that you saw. You saw it in San Diego. You saw it with, you know, with Toronto here. Did you know when you saw it, like, this guy is the real deal? Like, look at this guy crushing off the tee. He's going to be in the bigs. Like, did you just kind of, like, you see Tatis, you know, now, Tatis Jr. Today he hit an absolute monster home run. And you're just looking at, like, like this guy's going to be a major leaguer. And, you know, it's just laughable how head over heels he is in the competition. How many guys did you sit back in, in the booth and go, wow, like, this dude is, I don't even know why he's here. He shouldn't be here. He should be in AAA. He should be in the majors. He should be in the Hall of Fame. How many guys did you sit there and were, were just blown away and everyone just looked around like, is this guy for real? Like, like really? I think Vlad might be the only one who I've ever sat back and said, gosh, that could be a potential future Hall of Famer if he can do what he's been doing in the system at the highest level. And as it relates to the Padres, you know, there's not really one guy who stood out in advanced A to me. Uh, and again, the difference, one of the things I learned once I moved east and went up a level to work in double A, there is a huge difference. I think that's the largest chasm of talent is between advanced A and double A just because everything is tighter in double A. Everything is that much faster, you know, between double A AA and triple A, not a whole lot of difference. A low A and high A, not a whole lot of difference, at least in my experience, in terms of watching the talent make these level jumps. So at the time, you know, I remember a couple of tape measure blasts that Hunter Renfro not only hit in batting practice, but in the game. Of course, there's that 36-foot high wall in right field at the Diamond in Lake Elsinore. It was always fun to see him pepper that thing. And so, you know, not many guys in Lake Elsinore I saw who I circled as, hey, these are guys who are going to go on and, and be superstars. I will say Phil Maton from his first outing as a member of the Storm back in 2016, I believe, you knew that there was something special about that fastball. And, you know, he had a near meteoric rise to join the Padres and make his debut. So speaking of all that, with with rising up through the system and stuff like that, you obviously have been the benefit of watching two amazing far systems. And I know this might be a weird question because as a fan, I'm sure you have different, you know, viewers, you know, views on that than a broadcaster. But service time. You got Vlad Jr. last year, 
yeah, I get it last year. They weren't going to contend. Why call him up? There's no reason. But this year, he crushed it. He was the player of the year. He's proven at every level. He's not going to come up because the Blue Jays, who are a you know, a known cheap organization, a cheaper organization. Not not necessarily cheap, more constraint service time wise. Yeah, service time, but they don't really pay their free agents and big time free agents anymore anyway. They more they mostly like to kind of move on from those guys. But how do you feel about the whole service time era? How do you feel about MOB and not just the Blue Jays, but multiple teams kind of being like, you know what? I really want to have this guy on my team in 2023. I'd rather pay him in 2024. Does it bother you? Do you think it's unfair? Do you think it's just part of the business? And and who cares? These guys are going to get paid anyway. What's your what's your thought on service time and maybe specifically on Vlad service time? I'll preface this thought by saying that I do my best to not let anything that I can't control bother me or frustrate me too much. So obviously I am not in the Blue Jays front office and I have no control over the rule about that MLB, the MLB has put into place as it regards to service time. So uh, having given the thought in terms of, you know, anger or frustration, either as a fan or as a professional, but that said, you know, the system is as it is and the Blue Jays are working within the system and taking advantage of certain rules that are in place. That said, how can you find a way to bring the concept of, you know, getting the most value out of your asset, because if we're talking business, and that's certainly something I've learned in the last five years is baseball truly is a business. You know, it's said all the time. It's a classic cliche in this industry. But that said, really, it's X's and O's and dollars and cents. And sometimes the dollars and cents take uh, precedent over the X's and O's. And so in this case, it's you could be talking millions and millions of dollars that could be the difference. And so for the Blue Jays, thinking as they think, and as you said, you know, managing their assets the way that they do, not the worst idea for them. Now, obviously, as a fan, and we see it all the time with the Fisher Cats on Blue Jays Twitter, a lot of lot of frustration about the fact that Vlad has not had the opportunity or they've said that they're going to hold Vlad down, Vlad down until that clock doesn't start. But at the same time, the system is as it is at the moment, and I definitely think it's a part of a bigger conversation that needs to be had about finding ways to keep the game exciting, which, of course, is what the commissioner and everybody in Major League Baseball is trying to figure out. How do we adapt the game to be more exciting for the modern fan? And this might be one of those ways is to adapt the service time rules and when that clock starts and find ways to give the fans, to give the people what they want, which is they want to see this once-in-a-generation prospect hit big league pitching into the stratosphere, uh, but at the same time recognize that there's potentially millions of dollars on the line a few seasons down the road, and that certainly has to play into any business's action plan or, or kind of strategy when it comes to managing these players, which at the end of the day are financial assets. There's really no way to fix this whole service time thing. There isn't like a correct way, in my opinion, to where... You know, we could make it to where you can keep these players for an extra year without taking away the talent. It's really a kind of a puzzle at this point because there isn't a way that we can fix it, but all we can do is really complain about it. Yeah, there's no way to fix it. It's not something that's broken per se. Like you said, you know, a few seconds ago, it's X's and O's, it's it's dollar signs and cents. And that's what it is, it's a business. And at the end of the day, you got to keep your fans happy, but is anyone going to remember people are going to remember but does it affect the blue jays next year if vlad jr comes up does vlad jr make them a playoff team no the answer is no they have starting pitching issues they have health issues and they have lineup issues he helps for sure you know if he's if he's a three four five war player absolutely but that takes them from you know fourth place in the league to contending for third 
you know, that doesn't make them a 190 team win. So in that aspect, you know, it's true. It, I think it stinks for the fans of teams like, you know, say the Red Sox, say the Yankees, the A's, the Rays, teams that are right there right now can win this, can win the world series, can make the playoffs. And they don't want to call up that guy, you know, whoever it may be in this case, it's Vlad, but it is a business. And at the end of the day, Vlad will be up for the blue Jays. It's just going to take a month or two, but it is a, it is a, a weird conversation to have when you're like, yeah, this guy's pretty good, but you know, we're trying to save, you know, $3 million eight years from now, you know? Well, quick thought experiment for, for you guys. Uh, you know, first and foremost, we have to remember that, of course, winning a championship is always, you know, that is target number one on the baseball side. But on the business side, these businesses are trying to turn a profit. So obviously, you know, it's it's about putting butts in seats. So an opportunity to potentially put more butts in seats when Vlad's in the lineup. So a thought experiment for you. What if there was an opportunity to bring up a player such as Vlad and it's almost like a probationary year or a tryout year, trial year, for example, where he's got to hit certain benchmarks similar to various contract incentives that are put into these contracts of these superstars if they hit or even regular players if they hit a certain amount of innings, certain batting average, certain amount of runs batted in. You could do that with advanced stats. And so if you find a way to work that into not just that individual relationship with, say, Vlad and the Blue Jays, but maybe put some kind of standard onto like this rookie season that may not start the clock if they don't achieve a certain level of success. Yes, nothing's perfect. It could get really wonky. There could be ways to manipulate that. But you allow the players to be seen by the fans, specifically a Vlad Jr. type who the fans want to see. And there's no doubt his first month of games in Toronto, that place would be sold out or very near to it. And there would not be a lot of empty seats in the venue to see this talent do his thing. But that said, the Blue Jays would then be protected from a business side if Vlad doesn't perform on the field to the expectations of this previously arranged agreement. Again, it's a thought experiment, and I'm sure there's plenty of holes that can be poked into it, but certainly something to consider going forward. No, it's something to run with because if you look at the NHL, the NHL does something with similar to that where a draft pick can come up. He gets drafted, say, you know, next year I get drafted in the NHL by the Boston Bruins. Cool. So I'm in Providence. I'm hanging out. The season starts. I have nine games to play in Boston, in the NHL, and you can play nine games there. And then after that nine game experiment, the team is asked, OK, do you want him up in the pros? Or you want him in the minors? If they put him in the minors. Nothing happens to his contract. My contract would still not be there yet. I wouldn't waste a year. If they say we're going to keep him for the year, then my service time starts. So it's not, you know, a big sample size, but it is, you know, what, 12% of the season when you're up for nine games in a 82-game season. So there are ways around it. Other, other, you know, leagues do it. Other teams do it. But, you know, that's not a bad idea at all. And when you look at all the advanced stats now, and, I mean, you have advanced stats for anything. You have advanced stats for guys like, you know, the amount of strikes that they took that umpires messed up on, you know, right. like the craziest stuff goes on and, you know, piggybacking off that before I let Austin get to the next question. Do you think that these rule changes are good? You're going to see a pitch clock in the minors and it's already been there. And, you know, they're talking about electronic strike zones, the big ones like that. Are you for them or are you against them? I'm definitely for the pitch clock and for the in-between innings time limit, which is something that we've experienced here in AA over the last season or so. And it honestly does not make that big of a difference. There, are, I can count certainly on two hands and maybe on one the times where 
the pitcher, whether it was for the Fisher Cats or for the opponent, ran out the clock and an automatic ball was awarded. It was very rare. And I think with these younger players coming up and experiencing these rule changes, as I think MLB did a good job of implementing with the partnership of MILB, it's going to really be something that will be a seamless transition a few more seasons down the road once you've graduated these players who have this experience coming up with the clock to now speed up the game just a little bit. Now, as a purist, at least the purist deep inside of my soul, there's a little issue with the fact that there's now a clock affecting the game in some way, shape, or form. But that said, it's got to be adaptable, and not everybody's like us who are the diehard baseball fans or sports fans in general. How do we attract those casual fans? Again, I'd hate to continue to go back and bang the business drum, if you will. But again, how are we attracting more fans? And how are we able to make those fans who show up to the game more engaged and then want to come back and continue to support the game itself and grow the game? You you touched on it briefly. You said that you believe that the biggest talent gap or the biggest talent I guess increase is, is it you said in between uh, high A and double A. What makes that talent gap so great? And why do you think it's such a big jump? First and foremost, I think that once you get to the upper minors, it's easy to uh, picture it as a bottleneck, right? So you put a lot and it's not even a, like a wine bottle. It's almost more like a funnel. But that serious curve where you go from the body of the bottle to the neck of the bottle, that is really, in my opinion, what happens between double a or advanced A and double A. And partly because, you know, you see it in the average age of the players. It starts to get a little bit older. And obviously, as you grow older, even if you're picked out of college when you're in many ways, shapes and forms, pretty much the size you're going to be. Anybody can fill out, but your frame has been established. You know, those guys are still coming into their own as professional baseball players. And so by the time you get to double A, you have anywhere from two to five professional seasons under your belt. And as we know, with any experience comes more talent, more ability, and more ways to be successful and figure out ways to get around obstacles in situations that are now more familiar to you because you've seen them over those two to five seasons in the past to start your professional career. So I really do think it's a combination of experience and age, which seem pretty straightforward in not any kind of advanced analysis of the level. But really, once you get to double A, it is a noticeable difference. And the pitching, especially guys have really figured out how to not only use their stuff, they've maximized the amount of pitches that they can throw. Maybe they've added another pitch between the start of their professional career and by the time they get to double A, or they're more confident pitching inside the hitters, or they're able to bury the curveball in certain counts and they're confident in that ability to control various pitches. And so that's why I think that's the biggest jump between advanced A and double A. And also, you see a lot of guys who come up from advanced A and they just can't hack it, uh, whether it's at the plate or on the mound with the talent level in double a. So I see a lot more of that weeding out process happening as well. You know, you can talk, we can talk about that pretty much all day if we're going and coming down to it. I mean, I think that we've talked to probably a total of 10 players and I think seven of them had actually been past the double a level. And I think every single one of them said the biggest jump is between, you know, high a and double a just because there's more better prospects in double a it seems like that's where you get the more the more polished people and triple a is more you know you get rehab assignments and you get guys who have been to the league but can't make it in the league you have those quadruple a players. trying to make it back yeah that we like to call them but double a double a is where the stars are man that's why i loved living in san antonio growing up because i got the padres double a team 
double A team followed me here to Amarillo, so I have the Sod Poodles now. But I mean, if you look up and down pretty much every single major league roster, there's a good chance that probably three out of their five top five prospects are going to be in double A. Right. And you know, these, especially pitchers, you know, you see it with pitchers often and occasionally with position players. In fact, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. became one of the first Fisher Cat position players to go directly from double A to the big leagues. In fact, Anthony Alford was the first to do that back in 2017. But with pitchers, if you make it to double A as a pitcher and you're successful in double A, you have what it takes to be successful in the big leagues in some way, shape, or form. And I've said it a few times already in our conversation, but again, it's the ability to repeat your stuff, the ability to hit your same spot with the pitch that you'd like to throw to that spot and do that batter, you know, at that, at that in, at that out, inning in, inning out, outing, out, outing in all sorts of ways. So you catch my drift on that. And so to be able to continue to do that in double A to me is a signal that this person, and I know it's a signal to the organization that this player pitches for as well, this kid could certainly, this man at this point, can pitch in the big leagues. It's just a matter, again, of being consistent. Yeah, consistency is key, and it, you need it in everything in life. You know, you can't be a can't be a broadcaster if you're, you know, you can't speak half the time. You know, if you're stumbling over your words every single day and stuff right. like that, you can't do it. And and just like, you know, umpires can't miss every call. You know, everyone's going to have a mess up here and there. But consistency is key. And I think that's one thing that you try and perfect craft going up through the minors. And, you know, the guys that we talked to have all said, you know, you work on little things and then you adjust when someone else works on their little things. Right. So it's all relative to staying consistent. And obviously the guys that we talked about today and they, they've stayed consistent and they've gotten better on their way there. So let's ask, let's switch the conversation to you. Let's, let's talk about a few questions with broadcasting. Great. How many different levels have you broadcasted? And with that, is it a big change in the way that you broadcast? Would you broadcast a double a game in the middle of the summer with 300, you know, 30 people in the stands, the same way that you would broadcast opening day for the blue Jays in 2022? So interesting perspective there, right? Interesting question you ask because, you know, the the goal, in my opinion, of every broadcaster is to each night you paint a picture. So you start with a blank canvas at the beginning of the game. And by the end of the game, you've created some kind of image. It could be a masterpiece. It could be pretty decent or it could be a series of scribbles. And you use the tools and your paintbrush, in this case, uh, your various research and the things that you say and all the things you know about the players and about the game itself and also you know you're using your scorebook that's something that the voice of the storm sean mccall uh, one of my dear friends and uh, my mentor in this business has really taught me early on in those early advanced day seasons of 2014 and 2015 the importance of a scorebook and these days especially with tv broadcasts you know it's easy to kind of lose track of the book because you've got everything there for you or it's on the screen in front of you or it's on the at bat app on your phone or on your computer so there are ways to kind of trick yourself into thinking you've got all the information that you need. But for me, that number one paintbrush for a broadcaster is the scorebook. And so that doesn't matter how many people are in the stands. And so luckily in our league, luckily it's more than 30. I think you have a minimum of uh, maybe 500 people when you go to places like uh, Binghamton, New York, or Erie, Pennsylvania, and thousands of people at other places. So luckily the energy is kind of built in at double A. But in advanced day, going to a place like High Desert in Adelanto, the former High Desert Mavericks, may they rest in peace as that team no longer exists. Really? Going to a place like that, there were 30 people in the stands. But that said, another thing Sean McCall taught me was, again, 
to you know be consistent, much like a player can be, regardless of who's watching. You never know who's going to be listening. So for me, there's a little bit of an energy uptick, obviously, when the ballpark is full. You're radiating off of that. The crowd mic is hot. It's picking up all the sounds of the ballpark. So, yes, your painting is going to be a little bit more vivid. But that said, uh, still putting in the same effort for those 30 or 300 in, as opposed to the 3,000 to 5,000. And, hey, Joe DiMaggio said it. Uh, I'm not going to get the quote perfect here, but essentially he said, why does he play hard every day? It's because somebody could be seeing him play for the first time. So I never know when somebody's tuned in for the first time. And it's my responsibility to be my best day in and day out, regardless of what's happening in the stands or how many people are in the stands in the stadium in front of me. Yeah, that's a great, that last part is perfect because it's just like when you practice, you practice like you're playing a game, right? Because you never know who's watching. You never know who's watching. Be like, oh, you know what? Like, I like that guy. Like, you know, oh, my cousin is this guy and, you know, he's going to give you a phone call and the next thing you know, you're broadcast for the Yankees. You know, you never know when stuff like that's going to happen. But, you know, it's a good way to put it with the blank canvas because, you know, you are telling a story because when you listen on the radio, when you're driving two hours home from, from college when you were in college or, you know, you're driving home from your commute, you're stuck in traffic and you listen to the game, you're trying to visualize what's going on in, you know, real time, right? You're not watching it, but you're pretending you're, you're using your imagination for it. So when it's a good setup and a good voice and a good story, you're more engaged into it. And just like with everybody else, I'm sure every single broadcast, you're trying to get better and, and you're and you're trying to you know make your craft a little bit you know more unique. Yeah, and you know that's certainly something that every broadcaster thinks about. Some think about it more, and others think about it less. And that is about improving every day. And that's something that I've really made it a focus on in the last two seasons. Once I got out here to New Hampshire to do a better job about going back and listening to the broadcast, going back and pulling out highlights, and also pulling out lowlights, and thinking about ways that I can better describe the situation that's in happening in front of me. It's unfolding in real time, and so there's certain a little bit of improv to it and you know a little bit of acting at the same time that performance art and that's the way i view it in terms of putting out a product that people can really enjoy whereas other guys and by no fault of their own this is certainly another way to go about it and it's just as good as my way but other people like to be more about the stats and the information and for me baseball isn't about the stats and information as it is about the feeling it is as it is about the experience as it is about the possibility because not only can anything happen on any given play you have the juxtaposition of a one-on-one matchup between the batter and the pitcher combined with a team sport and for me all of the complexities of baseball and all of the different storylines that can emerge just between the first pitch and the final out let alone an entire season, that's what puts baseball and specifically broadcasting baseball on the radio at the top of things I want to spend the rest of my life doing. Yeah. And obviously you have a great passion for it. And, you know, to piggyback off that and, you know, we'll wrap up here because we don't want to keep you all night because you, you've been awesome. Two questions. First, what's your favorite call? And if, if you don't have one, what's one that, you know, was maybe a big moment. And the second one, what are your goals for 2019 as a broadcaster? I think my favorite call, and I haven't given too much thought to it, and I'm one of those guys who doesn't try to be really kitschy or come up with any kind of catchphrase, but so I, I haven't given you know much thought to, oh, what are my top three calls that I've created or I've been able to come up with in the moment. But for me, being able to call Vlad Jr.'s first double-A home run, I felt as though I was in the moment and at the same time knew the situation. Uh, and there was a brief welcome to the Eastern League, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and felt very confident about that one. Uh, and then also 
This wasn't necessarily a great call. It certainly served its purpose. And I can, whenever we hear our, our own work, whatever it might be, or we read our own writing, we can always see ways to improve. And oh, it's, it's always certainly so bad. All the time, right? And so yeah, we are our always own picking worst apart ourselves. You're always like, that was so stupid. And there are plenty of moments that happen, and it's important to have patience with yourself in any kind of creative endeavor to know that it's not all going to be gold all the time, but to know that as long as you can not only have that gold every so often, but turn that silver or turn that bronze into gold next time, that's your key to success. But the call I'm talking about was in the Eastern League Championship Series this last year when one of our players, Forrest Wall, hit a huge two-run, had a two-run base hit. It was a single, I believe, in Akron, Ohio, uh, to give us the lead and pretty much seal the deal. We had to come back home and win a game to clinch the title. But I knew in that moment, it was an extra innings in game two. Once he hit that, hit that. Uh, we were going to win. And so those two calls from last season, just at the top of my mind, certainly are two of my favorites. And as it relates to goals for 2019, you know, continued improvement, obviously, but I'd like to do a better job of, as much as I say, baseball is not about stats and information, finding ways to relate all of the data that is now a part of our daily existence for our hardcore baseball fans like the three of us and find a way to translate that into a relatable tidbit in every single game where John Q. Public at home on that commute home from college or stuck in traffic on his way home from work or on her way home for work for that matter. In fact, I hope there are more women than men listening because we need more women in the game. But to be able to translate this heady information, all this intellectual data, and find a way to make it relate to somebody who's a more casual listener. That's what I really want to focus on this year, to be able to not only keep up with the way the game is changing, but not leave behind that pastoral nature of the game. Finding ways to merge the two certainly is at the top of my list this year. All right, Tyler. Thank you so much, number one, for coming on. Uh, Basically, just tell everybody where they can find you on social media. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, first and foremost, for having me, guys. It's always a pleasure to talk Padres baseball, even though I'm not in the organization anymore. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Tyler underscore Zickle, on Instagram at T underscore Zick. And one thing people will notice about Instagram, I have a whole second life in baseball. I'm the in-stadium host and the on-field MC for the Fisher Cats for the home games. So traveling with the team, uh, I pretty much live the best of both worlds. So I get to exhibit my other crazy lifestyle on my Instagram page where I'm dancing on dugouts, shooting a Gatling gun filled with stress balls into the crowd, dressing up like Prince, doing all sorts of crazy zany stuff. So it's kind of a dual existence that uh, I'm honored to share and certainly grateful for anybody who joins me for the ride. Shooting a Gatling gun full of stress balls. Yep. I'm going to New Hampshire, and I'll, I'll DM you there, and I'm going to get shot with the Gatling gun. <laughs> <laughs> that is minor league baseball at its finest. That really is. At right its I'm, I'm, right by, uh, I'm right by Pawtucket. I'm about 15 minutes away from the Red, the Paw Sox over there. So got my share, fair share of minor league baseball. Absolutely. And hey, you know what? If you make your way to New Hampshire, tickets are on me. Happy to leave tickets for both of you. And you know what? Any listener who hits me up and is in Manchester, New Hampshire this season and wants to see some Fisher Cats baseball, find a way to get in touch with me on social media and I'll leave them two tickets to come see a game. Boom. There you go. Awesome. We have a date. Sounds awesome, man.